Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. I am really excited today to have two different guests providing two different perspectives on the future of electric vehicles. First, we're going to have Kristen Seaman, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer for General Motors, which is making an all-electric push towards 2030 and 2035 goals. After that, I will have a conversation with Brent Bennett, who is leading the energy program at Texas Public Policy Foundation, a right of center think tank in Texas that is working on talking about maybe some of the downsides of moving to electric vehicles too quickly. We'll, he- we'll hear both of their perspectives today on Coming Clean, and they both have incredibly important points that I'm really excited to share with you. Let's get into it. I am super excited to have here today Kristen Seaman, who's the Vice President and CSO, Chief Sustainability Officer of General Motors. And I'm sure our listeners are really excited about this episode because it's the first one to really hone in on the EV and transportation side of things. Uh, but Kristen, welcome to the show. And it's, it's just so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, Kristen, you and I met at the Aspen Institute Conference in 2020. Two, and we just saw each other a few weeks ago at the 2023 conference, and we shared a lot of you know similar stories and 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 love for the Midwest and growing up you know there and and also having um, you know the heart of General Motors EV push be in the Midwest where you're kind of revitalizing a lot of the the area that was you know struggling for a while, but GM has a really forward looking sustainability. Uh, you know, mindset. And it's something that I think a lot of people, even though it's at the forefront of your messaging now, still probably haven't heard about. So I'd love for you to talk about, just to get us started, how GM is thinking about sustainability, why it is such a focus, and what the plans are for the next couple of years and, and decades, honestly. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, it um, it was so great to meet you and see you again this year. And uh, as you said, the love for the Midwest, I actually grew up in Warren, uh, right around the corner from General Motors Technical Center. So as um, maybe as sappy as it sounds, I always dreamed of working there. So I'm, I'm living out my <laughs> dream. But um, it really is an exciting time at GM. We actually set a vision of 000 back in 2017. And that was zero crashes, zero emissions, zero congestion. And we've been well on our journey ever since then. And then in 2021, we set some pretty big, bold goals. Um, The first was to be carbon neutral in our products and operations by 2040. And the second was to um, eliminate tailpipe emissions from new U.S. light duty vehicles by 2035. Um, We've set science-based targets that are associated with those and really just working towards, um, you know, that all-electric future that we see is really being able to make such a huge impact, um, you know, not just on our industry, but overall transportation is is one of the biggest sectors when you look at what we need to do from a climate change perspective. And our footprint alone, you know, um, 84% of our footprint is, our uh, carbon footprint is the emissions that comes from the customer usage of our vehicles. So by transitioning to an all-electric fleet, you know, we'll really be able to tackle the biggest piece of that. It doesn't mean we can ignore everything else. In fact, we've 
made some big announcements. Um, you know, our scope one and two is less than 2% of our total footprint, but our scale is big. Our scope, our footprint, you know, is significant. And so we announced this year that we actually met our renewable energy goal, which was to be a hundred percent. Originally, we actually, originally our hundred percent renewable energy goal was back set to be accomplished by 2050. We accelerated that a couple of times, but we announced this year that we actually have um, sourced all of the commitments that we need to be able to be 100% renewable in the U.S. by 2025. So 25 years ahead of schedule on that one. We've said we cannot make this transition by ourselves. It's mm-hmm. going to take uh, policy. It's going to take um, collaboration between you know private and public and um, across industries, et cetera, and, and certainly with the utility um you know, markets as well. And so, it, in fact, I think there um, there was an announcement that came out just recently that this year was the first year that the U.S. actually had more, um, you know, progress in renewable energy usage over, you know, new energy coming from coal. So that transition is happening faster than I think we anticipated, as I said, with GM's commitment and many other companies that are committing, you know, their own transitions to renewable energy. It's it's something that needs to happen. It's going to help many sectors well beyond just the, you know, transportation sector. Um, and, And when we look at renewable energy, we look at it in four pillars. You know, the first is energy efficiency and everything we can do to reduce um, our own needs. You know, second is around additionality of renewables, which we talked about. Then it gets into policy and then resiliency, you know. And so if you think about what the car park, the electric vehicle car park will be able to do um, and help with the grid as we get into technologies of, you know, vehicle to grid, et cetera. Um, I think that transition is so important. And by going to an all-electric future, by making our own commitments around renewable energy, we're helping to accelerate that. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent correct. I mean, we're definitely going to have to build out a lot of uh, you know continued solar and wind and, and hydropower and nuclear if we're going to to truly decarbonize. I'm wondering you know, how you see the split. Do you see it possible with wind and solar only? Do you see do you see it as something where you're going to need nuclear? Are you guys investing in battery storage? One of the other really big challenges other than the grid is obviously the battery side of things. And that's kind of the the elephant in the room for a lot of people who are skeptical of of the transition to EVs. I'd love for you to talk just generally, and we can dive a little bit deeper into the into the battery side of things. But how are you guys viewing the future of of batteries within the EVs, especially at the scale that you're trying to, you know, make EVs hundred percent of our fleet eventually, uh, and especially the GM fleet, how are you viewing the battery side of things more, more generally? Yeah. I, I mean, we're really proud of what we've done. And I mean, it, it seems in, both internally and externally that we're making announcements, you know, almost on a frequent basis, um, of different, uh, partners that we have, as far as um, raw materials and, you know, assembly plants, we've got four um, battery cell uh, facilities in the U.S. that we've talked about. You know, the the first in Spring Hill is in production now. Um, the Lordstown facility is, is underway. I'm sorry, 
Lordstown is in production. Spring Hill is next. Um, mm. Following up in the facility in Lansing and a fourth one to be announced with our partners at um, LG Energy Solutions. Um, we've got a, a battery innovation center that we uh, are putting up in our Warren Tech Center as well to really continue the evolution of battery chemistry and new technologies, both from, a, you know, reduction in battery pack cost um, all the way to looking at different um you know, materials that we're using. Do you think that we have enough resources in the United States to uh, to make the batteries for the long term? Or where do you think, from the resource perspective, we're going to have to continue to expand uh, in, in this space? I do. I, I mean, I'm not an expert on every material and where it's available, but I think if you just look at what's happened in the short term, um, you know, we've got a partnership uh, with a company called Controlled Thermal Resources out in California um, in the Salton Sea area. And they're, um, you know, working on extracting lithium there with a, you know, much lower carbon um, process. And they're projecting that they could actually source 70% of the world's lithium out of that site. So, mm. You know, it, you can see prices at what's happened recently in the market. Um, you know, it's the, I think it's the standard supply and demand. Um, I also believe in you know innovation and entrepreneurship. When there's a when there's a need or or a demand, you know, new technologies come up, new players come up. You can see it in every sector, right? And um, and I think that's what the U.S. is is known for. Are there any really cool up-and-coming technologies within the mining and or battery space that people should be aware of that are that are just really cool that you guys have invested in? I mean, I think the um, you know, a lot of a lot of things that have happened at the battery raw material standpoint, but probably, you know, what I would be most excited about is is how we're looking at using our Altium technology um, you know, across the entire energy sector. So, you know, GM Energy was announced last year, which will consist of solutions for home, commercial, um, you know, really looking at how we provide customers with a seamless integrated energy management system, you know, which will help them from uh, a customer usage standpoint, but also, you know, as we talked about grid resiliency um, and really be able to use that backup power and, and storage for usage, right? Today, um, you know, an EV battery, first off, the battery lasts longer than we ever anticipated. And so even after the full usage um, from an automotive standpoint, there's secondary usage for storage and backup power, et cetera. Um, but then from a customer standpoint, to be able to use that energy, either um, both from when they charge um, be able to manage that from a cost and time of usage standpoint to in the event of a, a power outage to be able to use that backup energy for, um, you know, powering up their homes, et cetera. So, so GM energy is really um, going to be, I think, a game changer as far as how we're able to provide services to the customer um, in a very seamless way. And what does the infrastructure for this look like? Is it a, how, how do you see the transition between 
a fossil fuel infrastructure and an EV infrastructure happening at the scale that's needed? What what sorts of solutions do you feel like are needed? And where do you see the biggest hurdles in this? And where do you see the the role of American innovation playing in that? And why is that so important to GM? Yeah, um, great question. You know, I think EV accessibility and affordability, as you mentioned, is number one. Um, which is why we're so focused on having a portfolio of vehicles that really crosses every you know price point and segment. Um, you know everything from uh, the very affordable you know Bolt today to the the Equinox and Blazer um, that'll be coming out soon. You know the Equinox Chevy Equinox EV starting at around thirty thousand um, dollars really enables you know the broadest segment, um, very family focused vehicle for people to get into. And I th- and I think that's important for for customers to see that this isn't just a, a luxury vehicle, although we we have those as well, right? The Cadillac yep. Lyric is pretty, pretty exciting, but again, rather a Hummer EV. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, it's, it's hard to pass up on those that are um, super fun, but it shows the capability of an EV, right. right? It really can be, you can do everything you did in a traditional ICE vehicle in an EV, um, you know, off-road capability, et cetera. And so I think that's super important for, you know, there's many people that um, their their vehicle they need for their livelihood, right? For whatever, um, whether that's construction or, or, you know, sales, et cetera. And so it's important that they meet the needs of the customers. Um, we talked about reliability of the grid. Um, again, GM's doing everything we can to support that um, from charging stations to ease of use for, for customers. But it's going to be important that, um, you know, the resiliency and the, the reliability is there. Um, and then, you know, charging infrastructure as a whole Um has to continue to be built out. We There's no way General Motors can do that by themselves either. Again, going to do everything we can to support it. But, um, you know, and, and we've got um, things in place to help customers through the education, everything from there's a, a, a team out there that's available 24-7 called um, through our EV Live. So if customers are questioning how they how they go about getting a charger in their home or, or what do they need to do to be able to make this transition. So people are there to help. Um, so education is part of it. And then policy is really important, too. Mm. Uh, you know, there's been a lot that's happened. We're really excited with, um, you know, some of the um, great things that came out of the IRA and how that will help accelerate this transition. And so we talk a lot about everybody in, um, you know, that this is a transition we can't make by ourselves, but uh, we're going to do everything we can to accelerate it. Yeah. And that acceleration, I think going back to the earlier point, will take a lot of continued innovation outside the company, inside the company, but you guys have a lot of really incredible, incredibly smart and capable and talented people that are young, that are kind of pushing for this change from within. What role do those young people have in inside the company and outside? And what role do you see young people playing in this transition? Um, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, I mean, innovation is at our core, 
Um, you know, GM, frankly, um, changed the industry over a hundred years ago. And I feel we're about to do it again. If you, if you just look at the technologies and the innovation that's coming out every day out of the, you said it, it's an incredible, um, team of engineers and, um, and frankly designers. And, um, it takes the whole company, whether it be our, our purchasing and supply chain folks that are making these innovative deals, um, but that innovation is at our core. Um, in fact, as we, you know, as a company, we recently um, last year um, issued or restated kind of our purpose. You know, we had this vision around zero, 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 and there was a team across the company. As we are in the middle of this, you know, transformation, it includes our acceleration, not just to EVs, but also to AVs, you know, and autonomous um, things mm. that are happening. But our purpose statement is we pioneer the innovations that move and connect people to what matters, you know, and it's very simple, but it certainly connects us to our history, our heritage of innovation, um, captures who we are today and really who we are at our best as far as looking ahead. And so it goes beyond just, you know, the individual um, vehicle usage goes into delivery vans, ride shares, the things that are happening at, at bright drop and cruise, you know, we're creating new businesses with um, new segments that we haven't necessarily played in before. I talked about GM energy. And so it's really exciting to see how we're partnering um, both internally and externally. You know, I mentioned wind catching systems as we look at innovation, even in the renewable energy space. And so um, as an engineer myself, um, it's really exciting to see these things that we're doing and, and how um, every day engineers and, and the team are, are looking for ways to make it a you know, more effective, more, um, more competitive, um, lower cost and, you know, really new features and, and things to, to make the customer, um, as excited as we are. Yeah. And, and those who are understanding of that are, are incredibly excited. I remember going around the country in that EV years ago, which obviously it's the conversation has developed even more so, uh, than it was then, but just the excitement from a lot of these k- smaller town communities and seeing an EV for the first time and and wanting that to be part of their transportation future in those towns was was really incredible. And um, yeah, I mean, it was it was remarkable how even in some of these smaller towns, the EV infrastructure is being built out, and it was something that happened before these big capital investments and big you know government investments from the state and federal level. So it's there's a lot happening. It's a, it's happening really quickly. It's probably hard for you to keep tabs on it all because there's pretty much something happening every every minute of every hour of every day. And I'm sure some some new innovation has happened since we've even started recording this podcast. But we're, you know, kind of closing in on time. And I'd love for you to uh talk through just a rapid fire. What is your favorite GM EV and non-GM EV. I think people would love to hear kind of your perspective on that. Oh, favorite EV is, um, I'm torn, I'll be honest, between the um, the Chevy Equinox EV and then the, um, the Cadillac Lyric. I mean, the Lyric is, I think the Equinox is going to open the doors to much broader, um, 
you know, segment and, and really bring people into an EV that, that weren't considering it. And so that excites me to see the transition accelerate. Um, the Cadillac Lyric is by far one of, um, you know, probably the best luxury vehicle I've ever been in, not mm. the best luxury EV, but it is, it is beautiful. Mm. Um, and so, um, there's that, that's, that's my favorites there. As far as non EV, um, I don't well, know. GM. What's what's your favorite non GM EV? Oh gosh, non GM. I know I, you're you're not allowed to say that, but <laughs> um, oh gosh, I I don't have a good answer there. Um, I, my non my favorite non EV was going to be the the Z06, uh, the Corvette. I mean, it there's nothing quite like that acceleration, and um, you know, so I, I and I I joke I I say that I. I look at sustainability a little bit like I look at my diet, you know, I, I like to eat junk food. And so I run, you know, I, and yep. in the same sense, I, um, you know, I still want us to be able to drive those EO6s every so often. And, and so, you know, I, we're going to make EVs to balance those out until, you know, the E-rate comes out and those type of things. And so, yep. um, and everything else in the, in this space, right. It goes beyond just the, our sector, airline flights, et cetera. But, um, you know, we've got to do our part and we've got to make this transition as quickly as we can. And um, I think our products are super exciting and I'm excited for the the pickup trucks to come out this year. And there's just, there's so much in the portfolio when you really look at what's happening, it's, um, it's hard not to smile. Well, in the midst of moving incredibly fast and smiling through it all, I appreciate you taking the time to to join the podcast and, and talk a lot of this through and answer some of those those questions that people have been asking me and questions that I've had myself. And yeah, very excited to see where GM takes this and and where the future of EVs and and you know autonomous vehicles and all the work that you're doing goes. So thank you for for that and thank you for embracing our message as well. And excited to to continue this conversation and, and work together towards a more sustainable future. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for all you're doing. I had a wonderful conversation with Kristen Seaman of General Motors, uh, who talked a lot about their electric vehicle transition and their plans there, asked some tough questions and got some got some answers there that were really helpful. Uh, but I also think for the sake of our listeners, something that we don't hear enough of is this kind of point counterpoint uh, side of these panacea or kind of a single one size fits all solutions that we're told work for fighting climate change and reducing emissions and protecting the environment. And somebody that I've really enjoyed talking to, to provide an, you know, a potential counterpoint to the electric vehicle transition, at least at the scale and the size that it's happening right now, is my good friend Brent Bennett from the Texas Public uh, Policy Foundation, somebody that I've talked to at length about this and somebody who, uh, despite working for a public policy organization that focuses on this, not only focuses on this in his day-to-day job, but has really studied this uh, in, throughout his life. Uh, and has been really active on the battery side of things and on the electric vehicle transition, even before his time at TPPF. So welcome to the show, Brent. And I would love for you to quickly introduce yourself and maybe give a little bit of your background when it comes to electric vehicles uh, before we kind of dive into what was said in the last interview and kind of your stance on everything. Sure. Thanks, Benji. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm Brent Bennett with the Tepix Public Policy Foundation. I'm part of the Life Power Project, which is our, our national energy initiative at TPPF. Um, so I've known Benji for a long time. We kind of 
you know, work, working in the same area. So my background, I got a PhD in material science at UT Austin, and I was uh, my focus was uh, utility scale energy storage. So I did uh, battery research, but not for EVs, but for large scale energy storage. Um, but after my first job out of school, uh, after I graduated, was with a company selling carbon nanotubes. Um, primarily for uh, uh, auto manufacturers to improve their batteries to basically hybridize their batteries, um, taking lead acid or lithium-ion batteries and, and improving their ability to work in uh, hybrid vehicle applications. So that was where I kind of got my introduction to this particular side of of the battery world. Um, got to visit uh, battery manufacturing plants around the world and uh, got some great exposure to this. So even though I've, I've I've been about six years away from that now, I've been at TPPF for uh, almost five years. Uh, I still kind of maintain a connection to that. I try to do some consulting to keep myself fresh in that. In that, field. yeah, you've definitely had a lot of experience in seeing this transition before it even was publicly talked about as much as it is today. We all know that General Motors and Ford and these companies have pledged to go 100% EV by a certain date. Toyota has started to walk that back. Other car manufacturers kind of fall somewhere in between. I guess, generally, what is your stance on the future of EVs? And and what do you feel like GM and Kristen Seaman and the work that they're doing, where do you see the pros and the cons generally? And, and then we'll dive into some of the specifics. I think the, you know, the advantage of EVs is that um, you know the electric motors, uh, especially for city driving, are very efficient and uh, generally work very very good. Like they're more simple, right? So if you can get the battery right, the motor side of things is is very helpful, right? Um, and that's so that's why I think that um, you know that that efficiency and just the fact that as I think as Kristen noted, I mean I I, I got to drive a Tesla for the first time about a month ago. Uh, we rented one for my three-year-old son who just loves, he, lo- our neighbors have Teslas and he loves them. <laughs> so we got one for him just to have, just to have some fun with. And it's a lot of fun to drive. That's absolutely true. Um, the, the, I think there's a, the stigma that people have about, you know, oh, this not, you know, EVs not being as good in terms of performance as gas vehicles. I think that's something we can get over. And that's why I'm bullish in the long run on EVs um, because I think that there is, um, you know, there's some advantages to it. The, the problem is the problem is that we're you know especially with government policy trying to force a transition to 100 percent EVs um, from my experience in the in the in this field um, there's a lot of advantages to hybrids because hybrids you can use a very small battery um, you have uh, is a much smaller battery but you still get really good fuel efficiency because of the efficiency of the electric motor at low rpm. And you take advantage of that, but you also take advantage of the the high range of the gas vehicle and all the existing infrastructure that we have for gas. So you you lower emissions a lot, you improve your efficiency a lot, um, but you still get to use the existing gas infrastructure. So I think I think without the without the push, especially especially now with the Biden administration coming out with uh, you know new um, new cafe standards, new fuel efficiency standards combined with new CO2 standards that are going to basically force uh, 50% of vehicles uh, to be 50%. I think by 2030, something about 50% of all new vehicles are going to have to be uh, electric vehicles in order to meet those standards, fully electric. Um, So I think that that's, that's very problematic because we're trying to 
basically push this transition through policy faster than it would normally happen through the market. And that's the problem that I see too, is that basically by saying we're going to be doing 100% of anything, we're siphoning off any other solutions, right? We're saying that nothing else is worthy of being pursued. And as we've seen with hybrids, with really any fuel-efficient vehicle that has been coming online. Uh, every car has been getting more and more efficient, you know, year after year uh, already with the with the old technology. So that's not even including that. It's also not including the hy- potential hydrogen-powered vehicles or other, other technology that we haven't even invented yet. And I, th- I do fear, too, without even getting into the battery size and how much it takes to just create how many resources it takes to just simply create 100% electric vehicles for our fleet of vehicles in this in this country and worldwide if you don't even get into that you still are basically putting all of your eggs into one basket and 100% oil and gas wouldn't be good 100% mm-hmm. wind wouldn't be good 100% solar wouldn't be good we you and I have talked about that too and the same thing is true on on vehicles and I love EVs. I definitely think that they're important for the long run. I drove one across the country and, you know, showed for 60 days going through 36 states that it's possible to drive an electric vehicle with even 2016, the 2016 Tesla. And that's only gotten better. But to say that we're only going to have those by 2030 is is a scary proposition uh, especially when you look at a state like California that has set those standards for themselves uh, before the federal government even has started to become so active on it, they've accepted over $12 billion of taxpayer subsidies for electric vehicles. Uh, but only 1% of the registered cars in California are electric vehicles. And they plan on banning the sale of gas vehicles by 2030. So they've accepted $12 billion of the subsidies that you're saying don't have uh, you know, a physics uh, bias. You can't you can't skew incentives to to fit a physics problem, and mm-hmm. it hasn't quite worked at the level that they're talking about doing it at one percent instead of a hundred percent. But yet they're trying to do that in the next seven years. And how do you see this playing out when we're both agreeing that electric vehicles are an important part of our future? We both agree that. I'm sure that doing it in the United States and doing the batteries and all that stuff, which we can get into, doing all that in the United States is better. It's not that we shouldn't be pursuing it, but what do you think is going to happen if we rush this too quickly? That is the that is the issue is is timing and also you know allowing the market to evolve, right? And I think for a company like GM, um, you know, they can it might and it might actually make sense for them to shift their business model to 100% EV. I think that it it a lot of it comes from just the the stigma that fossil fuels are bad and that we can never have clean air as long as we have fossil fuels. Um and we we've we've reduced our emissions of of real pollutants. You know CO2 is not a pollutant in and of itself, right? It it, it causes warming which then causes causes damage right but it doesn't you know we breathe out co2 with every breath that we take right it's not a pollutant of itself and the epa puts out a great report every year that detailed puts shows that in detail and the covid lockdown showed that you know we that actually the you can take half the cars off the road and has almost no impact on pollution levels because most of pollution levels now are dictated by natural forces natural chemistry and weather um so it's 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 really a um uh, uh, kind of uh 
this idea that we can't, that we have to get rid of fossil fuels entirely in order to have a clean environment is not true um, because we can do a lot of what we need to do uh, while still having some fossil fuels in the mix. Right. And so I think it's again, and it's the same, the same philosophy behind net zero by 2050. It's like, there's no magic. There's no magic to saying that, well, if we don't achieve net zero by 2050, then, you know, for, if we're a little, if we're a little off, you know, five years or so that suddenly the world's going to collapse. And I think that what's missing from this equation is that there's such an interconnectedness between these issues and everything else that we do day to day, like an electric vehicle, a decision to go hundred percent electric vehicle doesn't just have to do with transportation. It also has to do with the energy grid and what's powering those electric vehicles when you're charging them. It has to do with the batteries and where are you getting the batteries for those electric vehicles? Yeah. Well, the perfect balance is it ideally is what the market would determine, right? Um, if we, you know, if we want to reduce emissions, then we, we, we set standards for emissions and let the market figure out how to, how to meet that. Right. Rather than, rather than setting effectively mandates for certain technologies. Right. I mean, Texas, you know, the, the problems, I mean, I'm right now involved in a very heavy debate about market reform in the Texas electric market. And that's most of what I spend my time on. And the whole, the whole problem is being created by the fact that we have federal incentives specifically for wind and solar um, and, and that are driving those technologies and not allowing us really to have a choice of how to what types of technologies to use what our view of the right balance of of emissions reduction should be um so that's i i i do have a lot of concern the same thing is going to happen in evs again because of the ideology that we have to get rid of of fossil fuels as soon as possible rather than looking at well how do we effectively reduce emissions while still you know maintaining the energy that and the lifestyle that we that we all demand right well i think that's a really good point that this is a this is largely a market problem most of these things come down to being a market problem because at the end of the day i mean i was talking to students at the Citadel, um, you know, the cadets at the Citadel this week in South Carolina uh, about this issue. And they asked, well, how are we going to get China and these other countries that are largely leading the production of mining and, of course, uh, other energy sources and all sorts of things related to this topic? How are we going to get them on board when they don't seem to care at all? And I said, the only way they will care is if it is cheaper to come up with the cleaner solution than it was before, if it's it, or, or than the alternative, because if it's not cheaper, they're always going to pursue the dirtiest. They're, they're always going to pursue the cheapest option, regardless of how clean or dirty it is. They don't care mm-hmm. about the environment in the same way that the United States does. They care about the economics of it. So if we can't make this economical, and you can't make it something that works in the marketplace on its own. And obviously, that's hopefully the goal of of a lot of this investment. But if you can't have that work on its own, then we're putting ourselves at risk while others don't do the same. And I see that as a very, very scary slope to go down, again, being completely supportive of trying to pursue solutions like that. The challenge challenge with China, I think, is that, you know, they they need to go through the same kind of transition. I call it a transition that we did, which it back 50, 60 years ago, which is, you know, they, they accumulated enough wealth to where they could affordably clean up their air and 
and their you know their citizens demanded that that happen right um so i think that's you know that's what has to happen is they need to they need to get to a point this is true of india too and the problem is that you know the trade off for them is that either they have the pollution or they don't have energy at all and in that choice, you're going to take energy, you know, wherever you can get it from, you're going to take it. I think that the, the key thing they have to be careful with is that, you know, batteries are not like semiconductors and other types of technologies. I mean, bat, the rate of improvement for batteries technology is about 5% a year, and it has been for decades um, in terms of energy density, in terms of you know, charging ability and so on. Right. So you have to look real close. You have to think of that and say, okay, where are batteries now? Where do they need to get to be in terms of cost and uh, energy density and so on to achieve our goals? Right. And can that be achieved? Right. Um, You know, even if we don't, if we don't get to 50% by of new vehicles being EVs by 2030, if we have, if the government has to walk that back because it's physically impossible, um, there's still going to be enough of a market for us to capture. Well, and that and that's that's the real question mark here. And I think GM's bet is that they'll be able to figure that out. And obviously, there's a lot of challenges and hurdles to figure out. And you know, we can we can hope that they do that. And and like you said, obviously, it's a very saturated market at this point. You wonder who's going to win and lose that that battle um, because mm-hmm. someone's going to lose. You would think, and it'll be interesting to see who does. And I really appreciate you providing this perspective because I think it's really important for people to hear. I think I share a lot of the sentiments that you have, and I think I share a lot of sentiments that Kristen has. And I think we've got this real opportunity here to have these complicated conversations about the future of this topic, because that's what it's going to take. It's not as simple as going to a stump speech and saying, you know, we can be 100 percent EV by this date. It's also not as simple as saying EVs suck and and there's no future for them in this country. And those are the kind of two mindsets that we hear about. That's not what we heard from you. It's not what we heard from Kristen. And it's really exciting to hear that, you know, there's these different perspectives that we can can actually have uh, in conversation. So I, I appreciate you taking the time. I also appreciate Kristen taking the time because both of your leadership on this is critical because if we're going to get to a common sense solution in the future on transportation, uh, it will not come from the oversimplification that we have seen. So appreciate you joining us and, and appreciate your perspective. Yeah, thank you, Benji. It's a pleasure. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.